Welcome to the 10th episode of Criminal Broads, the podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. 10 episodes! 10 episodes! I feel very celebratory about this fact, and I hope this episode shows that I've tried to make this one extra special by tackling a very famous crime from an angle that is, I hope, fairly unique, and by bringing in some cool clips and experts, etc. Also, listeners, um... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Every time someone sends me a message on Instagram or comes up to me at an event and says that they listen to the podcast, it just makes my day and it makes me feel so honored. And I think that the word honored is overused, but that's exactly how it feels. It's an honor to have you take some time out of your day to hear these stories. And I hope it is a pleasure for you and entertaining and, um, I always say this, but get in touch anytime, criminalbroads at gmail.com, criminalbroads on Instagram, if you have feedback or want me to cover anyone or whatever. So, enough of this shop talk. Let's get to the criminal broad of the day, right? This is a woman whose face has launched a hundred Etsy products and almost as many movies, but who remains to this day very, very unknowable. pitch you the premise to a really good story. It's 1892, okay? And Victorian women are suffocating in their heavy clothes, but they're also flirting and guzzling champagne because it's the naughty 90s or the gay 90s or even the nifty 90s, as Walt Disney would later call it. In a lovely, industry-filled town in Massachusetts, the rich are getting richer, but one little lady is having a terrible year. Meet Lizzie, our protagonist, a 32-year-old spinster who hates her super wealthy, miserly father and her prying, overbearing stepmother. Lizzie is going crazy living at home with these awful people in a tiny, stuffy, airless house while her stingy father refuses to let them move to the nicer part of town. Everything comes to a head when her father slaughters her beloved pet pigeons and then forces her to eat them, and then later forces her to eat rotten mutton broth for the fifth day in a row just to save a buck. Are you still with me? My point is, her life is terrible right now, and soon enough, she can't take it anymore. On August 4th, the most sweltering day of the year, she strips naked and pulls out something she's been saving for a really, really long time an axe. She creeps up behind her horrible stepmother who's dusting in the guest bedroom. Smash, smash, smash. One down, one to go. So she creeps downstairs where her father is dozing on the couch. Papa, she says, 
and he wakes up. Smash, 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 smash. Brains on the wall, blood on her body. And by the time that she's done, we, the audience, realize that she hasn't just killed two people, but she's symbolically murdered everything that oppresses her. It's thrilling. And then she goes to jail, but no one believes a woman could be an axe murderer, so she goes free. What do you think? Compelling, right? I'm talking, of course, about Lizzie Andrew Borden, a murderess so famous that most of us have forgotten she's not technically a murderess at all. It's been 126 years since the older Bordens were brutally murdered in their home, and we still don't know what happened on that fateful August day, but that has not stopped us from speculating about it endlessly. As soon as the murders happened, something else was born in Fall River that same day. The Lizzie Borden industry, the business of Lizzie Borden, the culture of Lizzie Borden, Lizzie Borden LLC, if you will. That industry, ragtag, unregulated, thrilling, and full of lies, shows no sign of dying down over a century later. I'm here today to talk to you about Lizzie Borden, the product, the cultural touchstone. Because today, you can buy a pair of Lizzie Borden earrings, and watch a Lizzie Borden rock opera, and see a couple of Lizzie Borden-themed horror movies, or a Sundance flick about Lizzie starring Chloe Sevigny, or go to a Lizzie Borden ballet, or read a Lizzie Borden short story, or buy a Lizzie Borden candle, drink a Lizzie Borden cocktail, and stay at the Lizzie Borden B&B. But the one thing you can never ever do is know exactly what Lizzie Borden was thinking on August 4th. 1892. The Borden House, in legend, is tiny and stuffy and cramped and horrible and practically guaranteed to make any single young lady go absolutely mad. In reality, though, the Borden House is very nice. It wasn't a mansion, but it was certainly a house that anyone would be lucky to live in, and it was large enough so that your family could move around in it without necessarily seeing each other at every turn, without necessarily, say, realizing that one of you had been lying on the floor of the guest bedroom axed to death for over an hour, but we'll get there. The people who lived in this not-so-terrible house were Andrew Jackson Borden and his second wife, formerly Abby Durfee Gray, along with two daughters from his first marriage, Lizzie Andrew and her older sister, Emma Leonora. In a room at the top of the house lived their Irish maid, Bridget Sullivan. Both Emma and Lizzie were unmarried and, by all accounts, rather regular girls. They were not femme fatales, they were not stark raving mad, they were not dripping in diamonds, but neither were they putting in a hard day's work every day. Lizzie was fairly active in the community with the Christian Endeavor Society, the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and her local Sunday school. Today, you can find recipes for Lizzie Borden-themed cocktails online, and up until last year, you could even order a Lizzie Borden Bloody Hatchet cocktail at a grill in Fall River. But if Lizzie was a repressed party girl, as some theories would have you believe, she was certainly guzzling all that champagne in total secret. Like her sister, she had her own money in the bank and lived a cushy lifestyle, what with her father sending her to Europe on a grand tour and buying her custom gowns. So it seems that living at home with her father and stepmother at the age of 32 was her choice. Did she long to get married? Did she have some secret heartbreak? Was she bored, dissatisfied? Was she full of a dark, dark rage? We don't really know. On August 3rd, several odd occurrences took place. Abby, 
The stepmother told their doctor that she thought she was being poisoned. Apparently, everyone in the house had been feeling sickly, and it seems likely that they were all suffering from a bit of food poisoning, though whether that was from an infamous old mutton dish or a dinner of warmed-up swordfish or a cream cake left unrefrigerated, who can say? Speaking of poison, though, Lizzie tried to buy some prussic acid from a pharmacist who refused her, even though she said she was planning to use it to clean a sealskin cape. Other notable things about that day, the girl's uncle, John Morse, arrived at the house for a visit, and later that evening, Lizzie told her friend Alice Russell that she was afraid something bad was going to happen. She was on edge and had this weird feeling like some sort of doom was looming on the horizon. She was, of course, completely right about that. The morning of August 4th, Bridget Sullivan got up and started breakfast. The family ate separately, and then John Morse and Andrew left on their various business errands. Abby told Bridget to wash the windows inside and out and went upstairs to the guest room where around 9.30 a.m. she was killed by numerous blows to the back of the head with a sharp object. But no one would notice her body for hours. A while later, Andrew came home and went to take a nap on the sofa in the sitting room where, around 11 a.m., someone hacked him to death so aggressively that his face turned into a bloody pulp and one of his eyes was chopped in two. Lizzie soon found his body, or found his body, depending on what you believe, and screamed to Bridget, someone has killed father, and so the investigation began. Lizzie was arrested for the murders on August 11th, one week later. In the ensuing investigation, inquest, and trial, various themes and weird details emerged that would make Borden obsessives pour over the case for the next century, and, as far as we know, they will be pouring over it until the end of time. Lizzie was acting odd, that's for sure, but then again, she may have been in shock, and eventually she was put on morphine to calm her nerves, which obviously would have had some sort of effect on her behavior. As we know now, it's impossible to predict how people grieve, and sometimes people look weird or even suspicious when they're just grieving differently than what we see on TV, i.e. just because a mother is not screaming over her child's death doesn't necessarily mean she is the killer. Lizzie changed her story several times about where exactly she was in the house at certain important times, and she was later seen burning a dress that she said had paint on it. Her trial started 10 months later and quickly became the trial of the century. Today, since she got off, but many people believe that she did it, her trial is often compared to the O.J. Simpson trial, which happened almost exactly one century later. It's not hard to figure out why the Borden murders still grip us. They're unsolved, they're particularly gruesome, and they involve a woman who never really told us how she felt about the whole thing. Plenty of why-she-did-it theories abound. She wanted her inheritance. She chafed under her father's rules. She was a victim of incest. Her father thwarted her love affair with a man. Her father thwarted her love affair with Bridget Sullivan. She killed during two epileptic fits, conveniently spaced 90 minutes apart. Some of these theories were first presented in novels, but they've sort of melted into the general pot of bordinalia that we're dealing with today, and so the result is that it's very easy to believe something for which we have no evidence whatsoever. For example, the theory that Lizzie was a lesbian was put forth in a novel by the mystery writer Ed McBain, who later told the Borden historian Stephanie Corey that he did it because sex sells. Speaking of theories, would you like to believe that Lizzie didn't do it? Then you can pick from a long list of other potential murderers like 
Bridget Sullivan, the maid, Uncle John Morse, an angry business associate of Andrew's, the suspiciously absent older sister Emma, a mysterious illegitimate son of Andrew Borden who might have appeared, an axe-wielding serial killer who just happened to drop by that day, and so on and so forth. But the only one ever tried for the murders was Lizzie. And at her trial, the all-male jury simply did not, could not, believe that a woman could kill her family members, especially not like that. And they also didn't want to see a lady hang. So they declared her not guilty, and she went free. But then came the books, and the legends, and the songs, and the lies. It's kind of like that OJ media blitz. Everybody had a theory and everybody had a thought because everybody was following it. Mm-hmm. And and so people it became invested in the story nationally, I think. She got into the water supply. She has not gotten out of the water supply. That's Stephanie Corey, PhD, who is an expert on all things Lizzie Borden and who just so happens to live in Fall River right next to Lizzie's final home, Maplecroft. Stephanie edits and publishes The Hatchet, a journal of Lizzie Borden and Victorian America. She's the webmaster of the Lizzie Borden Virtual Museum and Library, and she's the administrator of the Lizzie Borden Society Forum, which is an amazing place to go click around and read theories and the sorts of little overlooked intriguing details unearthed by people who are really passionate about the case. I spoke to Stephanie over the phone and asked her when the whole Lizzie Borden culture started, the whole Lizzie Borden craze. I think it started with yellow journalists and every newspaper following the story because as unseemly as it was and as, uh, you know, gory as it was, and to have a woman on trial, I think this was the first trial that was ever covered on the AP wire. So they had their little tent outside the New Bedford courthouse and they were, they were tele, graphing their stories and so people in San Francisco and Chicago and Los Angeles and Peoria and Muncie could read about the case on a daily basis as the trial was happening. Once the trial was over, the Lizzie Borden obsession had just begun. Books about Lizzie started coming immediately after the trial. After all, newspapers had seen so much success with her story that books were the next logical step for anyone who wanted to capitalize on the Lizzie boom. In 1893, Edwin Porter, a police reporter for the Fall River Daily Globe, published a book that clearly assumed Lizzie was guilty and had a deliciously florid title. It was called The Fall River Tragedy, A History of the Borden Murders, a plain statement of the material facts pertaining to the most famous crime of the century, including the story of the arrest and preliminary trial of Miss Lizzie A. Borden, and a full report of the Superior Court trial with hitherto unpublished account of the renowned Tricky McHenry affair, compiled from official sources and profusely illustrated with original engravings. And the books just kept coming. That same year, we got The Mystery Unveiled, The Truth About the Borden Tragedy, Fresh Light That Must Be Convincing to All Readers by Todd Lunday. In 1937, we got The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Edmund Pearson. 
1953, we got The Girl in the House of Hate by Charles and Louise Samuels. In 1961, Lizzie Borden, The Untold Story by Edward Radden. 1967, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight by Victoria Lincoln. 1974, Goodbye, Lizzie Borden by Robert Sullivan. We've only reached the 1970s, and believe me, the books kept coming and are still coming. And these are just some of the nonfiction books out there. We haven't even gotten to the novels about her. I think it's hard to realize, if you're not someone who's very passionately pursued the case, just how extensive both the scholarly and popular research on Lizzie Borden is, and how hotly debated some of these books are. People disagree which book is the ultimate Borden book, authors disagree with each other. It's chaos out there in Borden land. One cannot read a book on Lizzie Borden without risking getting your mind changed about some facet of the case or another. But books are just the tip of the Lizzie Borden iceberg. Nowadays, oh my gosh, name something she hasn't been sold as. Right. Bobbleheads, uh, glassware, jewelry, purses, magnets, paperweights, buttons, watches, needlepoint. I mean, you name it, she's everywhere. Today, if you're really serious about Lizzie Borden, or really unserious about Lizzie Borden, you can actually stay in the very house where she lived, where Andrew and Abby were axed to death. The fact that the house is still standing is quite unusual. Historically, most murder houses get torn down pretty fast. Just try spending the night at John Wayne Gacy's house or Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment. But since there was a business attached to the Borden home, a business called the Leary Press, that helped the actual edifice survive over the years. And today, the people who own it have turned it into a bed and breakfast. Now, Borden experts and fans often talk about how you need to see the house to really get a sense of the crime, because the layout is very important. For example, there's a debate over how Lizzie could have possibly been upstairs after Abby died, but before Andrew died, without seeing Abby's body. Well, some people who've been to the house say that it would maybe be possible to walk past the open door of the guest bedroom where Abby's body lay on the floor behind the bed and not immediately notice it. I mean, it's not conclusive forensic evidence by any means, but little details like that can only come alive when you've actually been in a place. So, the fact that the Borden House, now the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum, is available to the public for a reasonable rate is quite historically significant. There's just one problem. Ghosts. I jump up after hearing this clear female voice say, Hello, I want you, but this is the only voice we capture at this time. As you can tell from this clip featuring a crew of ghost hunters and the apparently lascivious ghost of Lizzie Borden, the Borden house has become a hotspot for paranormal investigators and their ilk. People spend the night there, taking misty photos of the couch where Andrew died and recording every bump in the dark, searching desperately for the voice of Lizzie from beyond the grave. These ghost hunts frequently veer into the ridiculous or insane, but there is something telling about them. They're proof of just how larger than life Lizzie has become. She's hardly a person anymore in our culture at large. She's a thing, an object of horror, a name designed to strike fear into our hearts, something that goes, woo, and, and just is threatening to get you. 
and also maybe kind of a joke? One for Andrew, two for Abby, three for Lizzie. Who are you? Lizzie, okay? Stop now. Stop it now. Oh, okay, thank you. Did you kill your parents? Okay. Who? Oh, one for yes. Yeah, she's actually lighting up the color. Did we just receive a century-old murder confession as one light is lit and held, indicating yes? Are you waiting for us to go to sleep? This thing says yes, we're sleeping in the car. I'm sleeping in the car with guards. Light it all up if you want us to go to bed. Ask her if she wants us to leave. Do you want to get in bed with one of us? Perfectly, Brian? Oh, you like Brian. Okay. Deuces, bro. You may leave. I'm out. I'm walking 15 bucks. Okay, so the paranormal side of the Lizzie Borden biz might be a bit goofy. But one interesting and serious thing to note is that the B&B is one of the only places in Fall River that's really monetizing her legend. Now, the Fall River Historical Society is the place that's keeping her history alive. And by the way, I've been there and it's incredible. I mean, I saw a lock of Abby Borden's hair, which was arguably way creepier than any ghost. But when it comes to turning Lizzie into cold, hard cash, there's really only the B&B. The Fall River authorities, weirdly, want nothing to do with her. This is in sharp contrast to nearby Salem, a city that's wholeheartedly embraced its bloody and embarrassing history, openly brands itself as the Witch City, and, in 2011, was making $99 million a year from tourism. Obviously, there's a whole moral discussion we could have about turning tragedy into tourism, but Fall River, a city that used to drip with riches, is very much struggling financially these days, with 22% of its population living below the poverty line, far higher than the national average of 14%. Stephanie, who ran for mayor of Fall River at one point, doesn't understand why they don't just lean into being the home of infamous axe-murderess Lizzie Borden. Why not pull a Salem? Why not turn Fall River into, I don't know, Axville, USA, or Hatchet Town, or Bordenville. Fall River has the bed and breakfast. They have Maplecroft, which is still in his existence, which is the house that Lizzie and Emma bought after the trial. So that's there. They're trying to get that place ready based on, you know, the city's desires for code and that kind of thing in order to be able to open that up. And we have the cemetery where the bodies are buried. And some of the locations that were there when Andrew and Abby and Lizzie were alive are still there. Most have been torn down. But you can always point and say, oh, on that corner was, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Fall River has it all. It's odd that the city itself cares not one whit about actually uh, exploiting her in order to bring in tourism 
or raise money for the city. It's the strangest thing. When Lizzie was on trial, there were all these people standing beside her. We believe in you. All these women's groups, all these suffrage groups, the uh, the uh, Women's Temperance Union, famous women of the day came and stood beside her and rooted her on and, and walked with her and defended her and thought she was great. Her church sat, stood behind her. And then the second she was acquitted, they all disappeared. Mm. And she lost her friends. She couldn't go to church anymore because people would get up and move away from the pew that she had. I mean, mm. she was shunned, and mm -hmm. yet she was acquitted. So you have to think of it in terms, I think, of people that it was unseemly enough that she had been accused. It was mm -hmm. unseemly enough that she had stood trial for this heinous crime. Not that anybody thought she did it after all, but that she was now somebody you don't hang out with because she went through this experience. Mm -hmm. And I think Fall River has never really accepted the fact that she had a life. She had friends. She had um, deep friendships with people. She, Everybody that knew her loved her. And everybody that didn't know her would make up gossip about her. <laughs> talk about all that Lizzie Borden gossip. There's so much out there and so much that has been repeated as gospel truth that it's hard even for the ethical researcher to get things right. Let's take me, for example. I try to do my research right, I love a good primary source, and I'm healthily skeptical of wild theories like that Lizzie was a deranged lesbian caught recklessly tangled in the sheets with Bridget, or that she killed while under the influence of a murderous epileptic fit. And yet, I was shocked by just how much I was getting wrong about Lizzie Borden. I thought, like so many others, that August 4th, 1892 was the hottest day of the year that year. That it was the sort of scorching, melting, unbearably steamy day that could make any Victorian woman in her heavy skirts go mad. And also, that it was so hot that Lizzie's alibi, that she was eating pears in the loft of her family's barn while the murders were taking place, couldn't possibly have been true, because how could she bear to be in the barn on a day that was so, so hot? Some people did some studies on the actual weather that day, <laughs> and it wasn't the hottest day of the year at all. In fact, the heat wave oh had gosh. ended the week before. Well, I tried to figure out where this came from as a, you know, a history hound, and so I was like, where, who came up with this first idea? So I always look for the first, mm -hmm. and I found in the trial that the district attorney, Hosea Knowlton, in one of his opening statements, made a statement that it was the hottest day of the year, even though it wasn't. But this is a year later he's saying this. Uh -huh. He was trying to get in the jurors' minds there'd be no reason for Lizzie to go to the barn because it would be insufferably hot. So he was laying the groundwork for dismissing her story of going and looking for lead sinkers because she was going to go fishing wow. as to why she went into the barn. Wow. So I think he invented the hot day myth, and then every author ran with it because in the trial it says it was the hottest day of the year, but it wasn't. This is a perfect example of the infuriating, maddening, 
puzzle pieces of Lizzie Borden evidence and how we move them around and are constantly getting things wrong. Something as seemingly normal as the weather gets used as evidence against her and then becomes part of the legend and then gets disproved, but it's too late because it's already part of the canon. And, okay, even if you admit that it wasn't terribly hot that day, that still doesn't prove that she's innocent or that she's guilty. It doesn't prove anything. It just proves we were wrong about the weather that day. Infuriating, I know. And that's not all we get wrong about her. Then we get this whole idea that Andrew is a miser, that he's this this money grabber, kind of tight with his money kind of guy. And of course, the girls want to live someplace else and he won't let them. And he's a mean pill, Sam. Well, no, he did all kinds of generous things. When Lizzie w wanted to do her grand tour of Europe, mm -hmm. he paid. That. 19 weeks all expenses paid Andrew paid for her trip to Europe mm. um, this is a guy who's supposedly like a cheapskate when his wife Abby's half-sister was going to be evicted from the house on 4th Street he bought half the house for her so that for his wife so mm -hmm. she could own a piece half of a piece of property and her half-sister wouldn't be evicted mm -hmm. That's what started the problem in the family because the daughter said, well, if you're going to do for her, you better do for us. Mm -hmm. so what he do? He gives them the Ferry Street house. Mm -hmm. he, they each have $2,500 in the bank. That's a lot of money back then. I don't find him to be tight with his money, but he's definitely a Yankee. And Yankees, he's a self-made man. He's right. not a part of the rich side of the Borden family. So every penny he made, it was his money that he made. So he was safe with it. They were just as tight with their money as their father was. Mm, interesting. They were all tight, you know, and then they bequeathed it all since they didn't have any children to charities and to friends. You know, Lizzie and Emma started the Faxon Animal Shelter here in Fall River. They mm -hmm. endowed it so that it stays alive forever. She was a big animal lover. And that's another myth that Lizzie hated animals. She chopped off the heads of cats. And it's crazy what you read in some of these books. And, and you're like, what? What? <laughs> wait, wait, what? So yeah, we get a lot wrong about Lizzie Borden. And that's partially because she is a huge industry. Not financially, necessarily, but culturally. Obviously, with any huge industry comes a tendency towards misinformation, towards people repeating things until they start to sound like cold hard facts. And the majority of the myths and legends are heavily influenced toward Lizzie being guilty. No one's going around spreading a rumor that Lizzie and her stepmother actually really loved each other. At the end of the day, most people want her to have done it. It's a better story. It's a far more shocking story than any other. And so we remember and repeat things that make her seem guiltier and guiltier and guiltier, or things that make Andrew and Abby seem more and more evil so that we can root for Lizzie to be a killer without, you know, being bad people ourselves. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Lizzie was innocent, though. I've been poring over the forums at lizzieandrewborden.com, and it's crazy how easy it is to convince yourself of her guilt by reading one theory and then convince yourself of her innocence by reading another. Here's just one creepy little fact from the case that makes me land squarely on a specific side. See how it makes you feel. A policeman, Officer William H. Medley of the Fall River Police Department, showed up at the Borden house shortly after Andrew was killed and talked with Lizzie about the deaths. 
he noticed a pail in the cellar filled with small, bloody rags soaking in water. Huh. He asked Lizzie about them, and she said that she'd told her doctor about them, and it was all right. What she meant, though it was uncomfortable for men and women to discuss back then, was that those were her menstrual rags. She was on her period. She told the police officer that the rags had been there for three or four days, but her maid, Bridget Sullivan, said that that was impossible because she'd done the washing the day before and definitely would have washed the rags if they had been there all along. So were those rags actually stained with menstrual blood, or was Lizzie using the Victorian era's intense reluctance to discuss periods as a genius way of hiding evidence? This officer, by the way, is the same one who climbed up to the loft of the barn where Lizzie said she was looking for fishing sinkers and then eating pears while her father was being murdered. This officer noticed that the barn floor was covered in dust and it was totally undisturbed. He didn't see a single footprint from Lizzie. No trail left by her long dress dragging about the floor. Yikes, right? I've convinced myself that she was guilty just by telling you all of this. But then I remember how Lizzie told her friend the night before that her father had enemies and she was afraid that one of them would do something and how her house had been broken into before and how she wanted to sleep with one eye open for fear that someone would burn the place down. Was that a murderess sowing doubt in advance or a terrified woman afraid for her father's life? Back and forth, back and forth. It's a dance of evidence and intuition and suspicion and skepticism that people have been doing since August 4th, 1892. My sister and I traced back the Lizzie Borden took an axe doggerel. We finally found out when it was written and when the first time it was said, and it was outside the trial while it was going on, somebody said it. And it was like sung to the tomb of Trodlala Boomdier. So it's like Lizzie Borden took an axe, Aww. gave her mother, father, mother 40 wax when yeah. she saw what she had done, gave her father 41. So it was a song originally, and then it became a jump rope rhyme. So she would have heard it because the windows would have been open at the courthouse because it was August while the trial was going on. So she heard it her whole life after the trial. So it was something that was always present. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much how people know her. And every single word in that is factually inaccurate. But it rhymes. The question that's just as mysterious as who killed Andrew and Abby Borden is what was Lizzie Borden like, really? She didn't testify at her own trial. The most we have of her voice, so to speak, are some letters. Her letters from jail to a friend show that she had very little hope of being released. And we have her infamously weird, circular, roundabout inquest testimony, which may have been affected by that morphine she was being prescribed to calm her nerves. Here's a clip from a 1975 movie about Lizzie, The Legend of Lizzie Borden, which uses some of the actual dialogue from the inquest. Had you been on pleasant terms with your stepmother? Oh, yes, sir. Cordial? That depends upon one's idea of cordiality. According to your idea of cordiality? We were friendly. 
very friendly. Why did you leave off calling her mother? Because I wanted to. That's the best reason you can give. I have no other answer. In what other respect was your relationship with her not that of mother and daughter, aside from your not calling her mother? She had never been a mother to me in many ways. I always went to my sister because she was older and had the care of me after my mother died. How long was your father in the house before you found him killed? I don't know exactly, because I had to go out to the barn. I don't think he could have been home more than 15 or 20 minutes. And what were you doing in the barn all this time? I needed some lead for a sinker. Did you say a sinker? Yes, sir. I... I was going to Marion on Monday to fish. I needed a sinker. And that's all you did? Look for sinkers? Yes, sir. In the loft. Do you think that would take you 15 or 20 minutes? I ate some pears up there. I asked you to tell me all you did. I told you all I did. I ate my pears. You stood there, eating your pears, doing nothing. I was looking out of the window. Stood there, looking out of the window, eating your pears. I should think so. How many pears did you eat? Three, I think. Now, can you tell us, Miss Borden, why it took you ten minutes to eat three pears? I do not do things in a hurry. Now, the real inquest testimony was about five times more repetitive and confusing than that. It certainly didn't do Lizzie any favors at all, but it was ruled inadmissible by the judge and not used in the actual trial. But aside from these weird, morphine-fueled ramblings and contradictions, we'll never really know what she really thought, which is why her story is so continually compelling, of course. She's a real cipher. It's funny how much she has been written about and yet how little people really know about her. So I guess since I live next door to Maplecroft and I can look out my window and take a picture of the porch, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That totally makes me understand why Lizzie wanted to buy up all the property around here because Mm -hmm. I can look out my window and see her her back porch. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if she was alive today, that would drive her mad because she valued her privacy. I I sort of understand her sense of propriety about things like that and not wanting to, you know, she never married, she never had children, she never wrote a diary, she never did an, you know, did an interview for the newspaper. She didn't even speak at the trial. So, mm-hmm. we never have her words for how she felt about her life. I used to think she definitely did it. Then I interviewed Stephanie and came away thinking, whoa, we were all so wrong about her, and it's outrageous that we think of her as a killer. Then I read more about those mysterious menstrual rags and was like, um, she's obviously guilty. Then I thought about her father wearing the ring she gave him, and I thought about how it's possible to have a difficult relationship with someone and still love them and not want to murder them, and I thought about how, if Lizzie didn't do it, prison must have been so horrific, knowing that not only could she hang for this, but that her beloved father was gone, the flesh stripped from his skull so that his bone could be used as courtroom evidence. 
I wish I could tell you now, one way or another, what really happened, but of course I can't. What I wanted to show you, though, is just what a fascinating and messy industry can spring up when we have such a historically significant and infuriatingly inconclusive crime. Lizzie Borden LLC is founded on message boards and well-kept blogs, in book after book and film after film, each writer and artist sure that they've finally found the best take on the crimes. It's an industry full of armchair sleuths and people willing to spend hours passionately debating what sorts of 1890s food might have given the Bordens food poisoning. The bad news is we don't have a definite legal forensic answer. The good news is there's still plenty of speculating still left to do. I have gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, depending on what book I've read, of course. I've gone through Lizzie did it to Lizzie didn't do it. And now, you know what? I don't care because wow. it's it'll never be solved. And the problem is there's not enough information to firmly prove any one particular person is guilty. You, you take a suspect, you travel down that road, and you hit a blank wall. And you take another suspect, you travel down that wall, and you hit that same blank wall. There's just not enough information to prove who did it. And because of that, it'll always remain unsolved. I'll just make one last observation about the culture of Lizzie Borden. Lizzie stays with you. People talk about her as though they have a personal connection to her. At one point during our interview, Stephanie said, I'd never do that to her. And at another point, I thank her for that. Even the paranormal hunters yelping to her in the dark believe that in some way they are the ones that might finally, finally get her to speak. Something about her lingers, it really does. And me, I have one small contribution to make to this theory. Let me first say that I don't like fruit, okay? I almost never buy it, it's not my thing. So, I've written a lot about females and crime, but I went most of my life not knowing much about Lizzie Borden beyond the vaguest, axiest details. And then last spring, I stopped by Fall River, and I drove past the house, and I saw some of the artifacts at the Fall River Museum. And then I began researching her, and I read about the heat, and the house, and the mutton, and the pears. Fast forward until a few days ago, when I went grocery shopping. I had just had a troubling phone call right before that, and I was sad and felt sort of blurry around the edges. And it took me forever to buy a small armful of groceries for supper that night. I walked home in a daze, my mind a thousand miles away. When I got home and finally looked at what I had just purchased, I found that I had brought home two perfect pairs. Massachusetts, you know her neighbors love to criticize. She got 
him on the sofa where he'd gone to take a snooze. I hope he went to heaven cause he wasn't wearing shoes. She kind of rearranged him with a hatchet, so they say. And then she got her mother in that same old fashioned way. But you can't chop your mama not even if you're tired of her cuisine. No, you can't chop your mama big Massachusetts. If you do, you know it's sure to cause a scene. They really kept their hopping on that busy afternoon. Went down and upstairs stopping while she hung the rags and queue. Her ma and Lizzie whacked her, looked an awful lot like Paul, like somebody in a tractor had been packing on her ma. But you can't chop your papa big and then blame all the damage on the mice. No, you can't chop your mama up in Massachusetts. That kind of thing just isn't very nice. It wasn't done for pleasure, and it wasn't done for spite, and it wasn't done because the lady wasn't very bright. She always did the slightest thing that mom and papa did. They said, listen, cut it out. That's exactly what she did. But you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts. And then get dressed to go out for a walk. No, you can't chop your papa big Massachusetts, Massachusetts. It's all far, far from New York. Are you evil? Do you feed off the killing and misery and dysfunction of the Borden family? Either the spirit answers me, or it's telling me it's had enough of my questioning. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.